The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to Episode 301 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician retired from medical practice. Our topic today is nurses and family caregivers caring for young people with mental health problems. Mental health problems in children and teens may or may not be the early signs of mental illnesses. Mental health problems may also be related to addiction problems. Addiction problems in children and teens arise from the use or abuse of illegal substances, addictive pain relief medications, and alcohol. And addiction problems in children and teens may or may not be a product of mental illnesses, all of which makes this a very complex topic. Now, also, young people aged 15 to 24 are more likely than any other age group to experience mental health problems and addiction problems or just addiction problems. And 70%, yes, 70% of mental health problems start during childhood and adolescence and 20% of addiction problems start at age 15 or older all of which is why our topic nurses and family caregivers caring for young people with mental health problems is so important to discuss it our guest is Shauna Johnston now Shauna is a registered nurse she holds the Bachelor of Science in Nursing and the Bachelor of Science degrees She's a mental health and addictions nurse with the mental, sorry, with the Mississauga Halton Community Care Access Centre. She's more than 10 years experience working with youth. She believes strongly in prevention and early intervention. She helps families understand the diagnosis that's being given to their young people. She advocates for them and she helps them access the services they need. She enjoys working with youth and teens, developing community partnerships and working with school staff. And one of her students told her that she must be a really chill mom. And another said, I really want to see you every week. And she once helped a student who loved playing hockey but couldn't afford to play. So she arranged for the local arena to allow the student to play for free. So, welcome to the show, Shauna. Thank you so much. Okay, now first question for you. Please tell us some more about your career and about any personal experience you've had with family caregiving. Shauna? 
Okay, thanks. Well, I think you did a great job in the bio describing my experience, but I've been, um, like you said, a registered nurse for just over 10 years. Um, Before I did my nursing degree, I had completed a psychology degree in Halifax and really focused on developmental psychology um, at that time. And so I took both of those two degrees together and began working with families and children with mental illness. I have a strong background in clinical experience and providing mental health and addiction services for children and youth um, and families throughout the lifespan. Prior to the work I'm doing now, I was doing high-risk home visiting, working with families um, whose children had were at risk for developmental delay for all sorts of reasons. So that was my background, um, and I have a knowledge of the mental health and addiction system for children and youth in our area, and I think that the knowledge that I have and the experience from my past is crucial for the work that I'm doing now. So that's a bit about my ex- my career experience. My personal experience, family caregiving is close to my part, heart. It's a big part of who I am. I'm a mom of two very active, busy children. I have a career that I love. Um, and my husband also has a career that he loves. Both of us are from Nova Scotia originally, and so all of our extended family are in Nova Scotia. So we juggle our careers and our kids and their activities very much all on our own. My daughter is a competitive swimmer, so we spend hours and hours a week at the pool, and my son plays hockey, so we spend the other hours of our day at the hockey arena, and we try to juggle their commitments and our career, and all those things are very challenging. I've always worked closely with families throughout my nursing career, and I've been really honored to be a part of their journey, whether it be with mental illness or other aspects of healthcare that they're experiencing. Journey is a very good word to describe what family caregivers go through in the kind of circumstances we're going to be talking about so much more. Now, Shauna, please tell us more about your work with the Community Care Access Centre. What do you actually do? Shauna? So I came to the Community Care Access Center, or we call it CCAC, in September of 2012, and it was at that time that CCACs across Ontario began working with local school boards. So this so this is a bit about what I actually do. So we work with local school boards to provide support for students with mental illness and addiction in schools. So recently a psychiatrist described it, and I thought it was a great way to describe the work we do, which is EAP for students in schools. Um, so when the funding came in September of 2012, I was very, very interested in this model of care. As you had said, I believe strongly in a preventative model, and this program is very much preventative in its nature. The program is funded by the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care and has a partnership with the Ministry of Education and the Ministry of Children and Youth Services. They have hired 144 registered nurses with mental health and addictions expertise across the province to work with local school boards to recognize and respond to student mental health and addiction issues. So this initiative really targets children with mild to complex mental health and and or substance abuse issues. We also focus on students who have been in hospital transitioning back to school to support them coming back to their home school. Or we support students accessing outpatient care, getting them to physicians, that kind of thing, helping students who have addiction issues access the addiction services that are in the community. Every day in our job is really different and meaningful, and we have the great privilege of working with a variety of schools in our communities, helping students and families navigate the complex mental health system. Another big part of what we do is helping to build capacity within school staff so that they can better serve the students that they see. 
I'm really, really happy with my decision to be part of this initiative, and I'm really looking forward to seeing the ongoing services that CCAC will be able to provide to our community. Right. Now, Shona, please highlight, highlight for us the types of mental health problems um, you care for, the, the kind of problems that you encounter in this work that you've just described to us. Shona? The current research, as you had said in the opening, shows us that about 70% of mental illnesses that people experience in, throughout their lifetime show early beginning symptoms in adolescence. So with that in mind, I can easily say that in this role, we care for young people with all forms of diagnosable mental illnesses, along with those who might be struggling with coping strategies to meet the challenges of adolescence. So the most common illnesses that we help students and families navigate would certainly be anxiety and depression. Many of the students I work with struggle with symptoms of one or both of these illnesses that impact their functioning on a daily basis. I'm currently working with a young man. He's struggling with symptoms of both anxiety and depression, and these symptoms are impacting him so greatly that he's unable to go to school or spend time with friends or participate in any of those things that most young people take for granted. So his story is actually quite common in the students that I see. While anxiety and depression are the most common struggles that I see, I also care for a number of students who struggle with disordered eating, non-suicidal self-harm, suicidal thoughts, psychosis, borderline personality disorder, bipolar disorder, and a smaller number who live with schizophrenia. Some students come to us with one. Some come with many diagnoses, but I truly feel that our time is best served with students have not yet been diagnosed with an illness at all, but are experiencing very early symptoms. We work closely with these students and their circles of support to help them access medical assessment and work on strategies to manage their symptoms. <clears throat> that young man I told you about who's unable to go to school or spend time with friends is at one end of the spectrum of illness. But what if someone was able to help him earlier? Maybe with an earlier intervention, he could have stopped the progression of his anxiety, allowed him to finish school with his friends, and be moving on to university, as had always been his plan. And that's why we do this work, to help students live up to their dreams. Now, the conditions, the mental health illnesses or conditions you've just mentioned, some of them are extremely serious. I mean, for example, suicide. And you've said this, suicide or suicidal thoughts come with some of those mental illnesses so mm -hmm. that it's right isn't it to say that what you're dealing with uh, is the potential for very serious consequences of these mental illnesses which is why this early intervention that you so strongly believe in and that you are obviously practicing is so very important now have I summarized that right back to you absolutely I think it, a lot of people feel like people who work in mental illness are not working with life or death situations, but we certainly are. And the students that I see, I see students every day who talk about suicidal thoughts and helping them kind of manage that and figure out what to do next is a huge part of what we do. Now, you mentioned when I was asking you about your background that you also studied psychology before you did, um, before you um, studied nursing. Um, what influence did the study of psychology have on you as you studied your nursing? And what sort of understanding from psychology carries through into your work now that you're doing for the uh, Community Care Access Centre? Shona? When I was studying my nursing degree, I think my background in psychology helped me to understand 
people in various stages of life and understand behavior. Um, when I did my psychology degree, I was really focused on developmental psychology across the lifespan. And when I did my nursing degree, we worked with students, with patients of all ages. So I really felt that I used the, the knowledge that I knew about normal development, what normal development should look like when people were going through various stages of life and how to support them in those stages. And I think I've built on that throughout my career. <clears throat> I've worked with families for ever since I graduated. I've always worked with families with either youth or adolescents in the family. And so helping families to understand this is normal. This is a normal developmental stage. Adolescents should begin to separate from their parents. That's what needs to happen when the brain develops. All those pieces that come from my background in psychology have strengthened my understanding of humans to help me understand the person who's sitting in front of me and the family that they live in. Right. Very, very important. That's very interesting. Now, mm -hmm. it's come... It's come the time, as I always say, where we have to pay the rent. That is to say, we take a short break. So we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Shauna Johnson. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. Build a better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. What does creme de la creme mean? It's the greatness of living. The willingness to be the best. It's living beyond what you know is possible with no limitation. Access Consciousness presents Creme de la Creme, a program that empowers you to choose and create the life you would like to have and entices you into being who you are, not who others would have you be. It's the best of the best. It's the finer things in life. It's brilliant. It's fun. It's exciting. Join us for Creme de la Creme every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Like so many others, do you put on a game face to the world? The stress of home life, work life, and personal life converge on us on practically a daily basis. Yet, so rarely do we let others see our real selves. And we carry on like we don't have a single problem. We need to connect and to find out we're not alone. Tune into Stories from the Heart of Leadership with host Shamin Sadiq to find out not only what's been created, but the story behind it. Listen live every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Shauna Johnston. 
Our topic is nurses and family caregivers caring for young people with mental health problems. Shona, now let's talk about the challenges that mental health problems create for young people and for their family caregivers and the ways in which you communicate with them, those people, those those young people and others. So, Shauna, first of all, what do you think are the most challenging of the challenges that mental health problems create for young people and for their family caregivers? Shauna? Thanks. Certainly, I think every student and every family that I work for would probably answer this question a little bit differently. Um, But given that mental illness impacts the whole person along with their immediate and extended family, this question has many kind of possible things that I could say. When I talk to families about their struggles, a few common themes tend to emerge. Certainly a big frustration is with the mental health system in general. The mental health system is big, it can be extremely complex, and it's difficult to access. I am very convinced that there are services in the community that are doing great work for youth with mental illness, but they're difficult to find, they're difficult to access, and at times they have impossible wait lists. So families really struggle to accept that their young person is struggling with self-harming behaviors or anxious behaviors that impact their going to school and that the service that they need has a six-month, maybe more waiting list. And as a mother myself, I feel helpless when having these conversations with parents. Imagine what a frustrating thing that is. Your child needs life-saving care and there's a long wait list. And that is a huge frustration. The other challenge that people run into on a daily basis is stigma that's attached to mental illness. I often think of families who are dealing with physical illness for their children. And when a child in your community has a physical illness, their friends and their neighbors bring food, they support the family, they drive them to places, and as they should. However, when a family has a young person and they're struggling with debilitating depression, they find their friends and neighbors disappear. And they have very few supports left. So students with mental illness deal with stigma on a daily basis from their family, from their friends, from the school staff, and sometimes they have their own stigma. So they have their own belief about what someone with mental illness can and can't do, and that impacts their ability to access help. And finally, just the reality of living with a young person with mental illness can be challenging. When we think of the symptoms... When we think about the symptoms of depression, low mood, low motivation, low energy, that's challenging. So a big part of my role is just helping the families understand that behaviors are part of the illness and when to accept the symptoms and when to push, and that can be very hard. Right. Now, let's talk about, Shauna, the challenges that you encounter in communicating with the young people who are experiencing the mental health problems. What, what are the challenges you, you experience in, in getting them to talk with you so that you can talk with them? Shauna? I think there's this belief in, in, in our society that teens are difficult to communicate with in general. And I've been working with teens for over a decade now, and I just don't find this to be true. Uh, most students that I meet with really want to talk to me. I recently had a young man who came to me who was struggling with symptoms of depression, and he had been in hospital um, due to a suicide attempt, and he was really struggling with a recent breakup from his first girlfriend. And he had met many professionals who had tried to help him when he was in hospital, when he was outpatient, and they kept continuing to tell him, it's just puppy love, get over it, it's no big deal. And all it took to bridge the gap between him and me was to acknowledge and validate his feelings. 
that loss, no matter where you are in your stage of life, is loss. And to acknowledge that losing a relationship is hard. And given that for teens, their life can really be built around relationships, losing this relationship really impacted him and his feelings. So when I acknowledged his feelings and validated what he had been through, that allowed us to communicate better. And he felt heard, and he let me know that. And it felt good when he told me, you're the only one who gets me. But it was also kind of sad. Because imagine how many professionals he met who could have impacted his health in a positive way if someone would have got him. But it isn't always this easy. Some teens, like some adults, are better at talking about what's going on than others. And some, we need to be really creative in our approach. I have a number of students who don't like to talk in the normal office kind of way, in my office staring at each other. They feel uncomfortable. So then it's time to do things differently. I walk with students a lot. We have coffee. We have hamburgers at favorite restaurants. I've met lots of teens in the past 10 years, and they mostly want to communicate, but finding what works best can be hard. And then, given that the illnesses that they're trying to treat impact their communication, it can be really even more challenging. When a student's struggling with low mood and low energy, they don't talk because they can't. So as a nurse, it's part of my job to understand what to expect and help students and families understand the illness as well. Now, Shona, talking about families, let's ask, let me ask you the question about the challenges you encounter in communicating with families of the young people who are experiencing the kind of problems you've been talking about. Shona? Well, again, given that families are complex and varied, communicating with families can be very complex and varied. Sometimes the challenge is just about education. For some families, though they probably have known someone who's had a mental illness before, they haven't recognized this, and they don't understand the symptoms that they see. So sometimes they push harder than they should, and sometimes they don't push at all. So my role for these families is just helping them to understand mental illness, what to expect, what's normal, and when they need to access help for their child. It sounds really easy, but for some families, especially when we keep in mind that stigma exists, it can be very challenging. And some take the education, they use it to support their student, and then they become advocates for change in the system. Who knows what's going to happen? Another challenge is the communication that happens between the young person and their family. So young people who are struggling with mental illness are impacted in so many ways. Maybe they're unable to go to school, they might be unable to go to work. They're often unable to do the simple things in a family, like join the family for dinner. They can't take part in the usual day-to-day activities that that family really holds dear. So then the families are very frustrated by this, or they sort of grieve the loss of their child being involved. So helping families recognize that their young person is doing the best that they can with the skills that they have at this particular moment, and that change does happen and hope remains, sort of the idea that this too shall pass. This can be very challenging for families to accept what's right now or to work towards change. So when young people have high anxiety, going to the grocery store can be overwhelming. Families struggle just to understand that. This struggle can turn into frustration, and then frustration turns into anger. I recently worked with one student who lived this. Her anxiety impacted her ability to do anything outside the house, so she stayed home all the time. And her family went from frustration to anger really, really quickly. And then there was this constant battle at home. People were yelling. There was crying. There was family punishing the student for not being able to go out of the house. 
And to say that all their communication had broken down was sort of, to put it mildly. So my role was to help them recognize that the relationship between the young person and their family is so important. They cannot recover without the support around them and a relationship of support. And that yelling and the frustration was more harmful than helpful. So it was very challenging for everyone. But ultimately, leaving the frustration out of the relationship helped the student get well. And that's the goal. Yeah, yeah. Now... It's a slightly different question. It's still about um, communication, but it's a question of what challenges you encounter with privacy restrictions in communicating, particularly with with the families, the young people themselves, and any other people or professionals you need to communicate with. So what about privacy restrictions? Shona? So working with adolescents has a whole new level of complication that other ages don't seem to have, especially when it comes to privacy. So as we all do, adolescents have the right to confidentiality regarding their personal health information. Families struggle to understand that there's no age of consent and the confidentiality that the student has is their right. So oftentimes, just because adolescents are going through that normal developmental stage of trying to separate from their caregiver, they often don't want to share their information about their illness with their family. Or they want to really take ownership over their own care and they don't want their families involved. And I certainly support students to do this, to take ownership over their care, but I also recognize that usually teens live with their families and their families care very deeply for them and they really hate watching their child struggle. And I also recognize that sometimes the symptoms of mental illness can make it hard for that student to take care of themselves. So I I think of a student that I work with who struggles with depression, anxiety, and disordered eating. When she goes to her psychiatrist appointments, she has such a hard time sharing what's going on, what symptoms she's living with, and how her medication is affecting her. It is so important for her to have an advocate in the room with her to receive the care she needs. But when we first met, she was quite determined not to have her family involved, so it was a big part of my job to help her and her family come together to set boundaries, what we could share, what we couldn't share, what worked for the student and her family. So now her family, and in her case, it's her mom, she's able to go to her appointments with her. She communicates regularly with me, keeps me up to date on how things are at home, and the student can recognize how helpful this is for her. We work hard to ensure that when she's able to do things on her own, she does. It's an important developmental stage for this student. But when she needs help, she has someone in the corner to help her, and it isn't always as successful. I do work with a few students who remain committed to keeping their health information from their families. And then the challenge is for me to help the families understand the young person's rights. But I emphasize with them, it isn't easy to navigate, and it's an ongoing challenge for families. When we look at communicating with other people who are caring for the student, whether that's the psychiatrist or family doctor, maybe the addiction counselor or the therapist, in that case, most students are really open with this communication happening. I'm always really open and honest with students about what I will be sharing and what information I do share. I try really hard to have those conversations with students in the room, or I have students read letters that I write to doctors, and I think this practice allows students to trust me, and it models behavior that they should expect from their care team. It's always sort of in my mind when I work with adolescents. Along with their mental illness, youth are moving into adulthood, and they're learning skills to take with them throughout their life. So this respect of their confidentiality and communicating respectfully is really important. What I'm hearing is the way in which you are able to bring people together in such a way that they do communicate um, 
and in a way that they have confidence in the communications. Um, have I got that right? Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Now, at that, this point, we're going to take the break because we're going to be coming back to some of these things you've been talking about. So let's take the break now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Shauna Johnson. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Tune in every week for the Wellness Lounge, a step further with host Desiree Watson. Our program empowers you to incorporate a wellness lifestyle into your life, supported by a diverse selection of guests, including physicians, athletes, and education and government professionals, while helping you realize the connection between mind and body and spirit you'll achieve a personal edge in injury avoidance stress management and personal development the wellness lounge a step further airs mondays at 9 a.m eastern time 6 a.m pacific time on voice america empowerment what does success mean to you is it being just like the person on the other side of the fence where the grass is supposedly greener We harbor too many feelings of envy and suppressed anger targeted at others, and it's holding us back from our success. Tune in to Wealthy Thoughts with Richard Levy. Just by listening, you'll be empowered to make positive lifestyle changes to live the successful life that you deserve to live. Wealthy Thoughts can be heard every Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Shauna Johnston. Our topic is Nurses and Family Caregivers Caring for Young People with Mental Health Problems. Shona, now let's talk about responses to the challenges that mental health problems create for young people and for their family caregivers and the ways in which you respond to problems in communicating with them and others. Now, first of all, let's talk about what you see. You you actually see as the most effective responses to the challenges you mentioned that mental health problems create for young people and their family caregivers. Now, you've already spoken quite a lot of this about this and explained it extremely well to us. What I want you to do now is to say, well, how do you see the effective responses to those challenges? Shauna? So most students that I work with and I see who are working on improving their mental well-being or their challenges, they're doing all sorts of things. Um, So we talk regularly about those normal preventative health concepts that we all think about, healthy nutrition, good sleep patterns, physical activity, 
And like all of us, sometimes those things go really well for students, I see, and sometimes those things don't go well at all. Um, sleep, in particular, is a huge issue for students. All adolescents need increased sleep for brain development, and students with mental illness are really struggling with sleep. They're either getting too much sleep and they miss out on other parts of their life, or they're not sleeping at all. And sometimes we can improve their overall mental well-being by focusing on sleep and helping them learn some good sleep hygiene, how to get to sleep, how to stay to sleep, how to stay asleep, um, and really turn things around a bit there. Another thing that we really look at is focusing on nutrition. Are they eating enough? Are they not eating enough? Are they eating enough protein? Are they getting their vitamins and minerals? And then a big piece of what we look at is physical activity. And we know from the research that physical activity can really help with mood. It can help with anxiety. It can help with mental well-being overall. One of the schools that I support has started a really neat group um, uh, as a running group. And it's such a great idea. So it's students who are struggling with anxiety or depression. And instead of going into traditional talk therapy or meeting with me to talk or with the social worker, they run with the social worker and the guidance counselor. And they, they're a cohesive group, but they're working on their energy and, and their mood through run. And it's such a great idea. And the research really supports this as an intervention for students with mental illness. And it's been quite impactful. The trouble is, especially for students who struggle with low mood and low energy, it's really difficult to get them to engage in any kind of physical activity. But we try to work towards this anyway. After we tackle developing a relationship with every student and we talk about all those kind of pieces, next my role really is to help the student access their primary care provider, either their family doctor or their nurse practitioner. And often I've noticed families miss this step or they don't recognize how important it is. So we need to start with a really good assessment of health. Are their iron levels appropriate? Because this can look like depression. Are they seeing their doctor regularly? Are they doing all those little pieces? That's really important. After they see their family doctor, it might be time to move further into the mental health system. And really, the research supports students doing both talk therapy and medical interventions. So if they're considering using medication for their illness, using the medication along with some talk therapy, it's the best way to manage or move forward. And it's another piece families aren't aware of. Families often think that one or the other is a magic bullet. So the challenge can be helping the student recognize the need for both, for medication and therapy, and helping the family recognize the benefits of both and assisting them to access both of these services, considering waitlist, and then there might be financial concerns for families, especially with the therapy piece. So on a day-to-day basis, it's really helpful for students to help them recognize their own symptoms. So that's a big part of what I do. Help them to recognize when they can sit with their discomfort in class, when they can use their strategies that they know to try to minimize their discomfort, or when their discomfort's at a level that they need help. When they recognize they need help, then helping them to know where the services are that are in their school is certainly one of the most helpful parts of our roles. When students know they need help and who can help them, they can move around their world with a bit of confidence. And I can be confident to know that they're safe in their environment. Right. Now, Shona, you've already said a lot about um, communicating with the young people themselves who are experiencing the problems. Just very quickly say to us what you find yourself saying and doing most often when you're communicating with young people who are experiencing the kind of problems you've been talking about? What do you do most often, do you think? I think most often we validate what they're feeling. They're talking about 
saying to a student, that must be really difficult for you. Tell me more about that. Tell me how that felt in your body when that when you felt anxious. Think about the moment. Tell me how that felt. And then when they're able to recognize the symptoms in their own body, let me give you some ideas of how to make that better. Let me give you ideas of how to sit with that. What have you tried? How did that work for you? There's lots and lots of, what have you tried? Did it work? It didn't work. Let's try something different. Um, and sort of validating what they're going through. And I think... Most students that I meet with will tell me no one ever validates them. No one believes them. No one feels it's really truly something that's going on. And I think that it's a huge part of just saying, wow, that must be really difficult. Tell me more. Now, I'm going to ask you the parallel question. That is, what do you find yourself saying, communicating most often when you're with communicating with the families of the young people? What's the commonest thing you find yourself saying or doing? Shauna? Certainly with families, the most common thing I do is say, that must be very frustrating because they're often very frustrated. And then I think I put my education hat on most when I'm with families. So helping them to understand it's not their loved one being willful. It's not their loved one wanting not to do it. So, you know, for an example of a student who's not going to school, it's not because their loved one doesn't want to go to school, because in fact, they very much want to go to school, but they can't. And helping families understand their child is doing the best they can today with the skills they have, and every child wants to do well. We all want to do well. And I think that I say that every day, at least once a day, to a parent or a family, so much so that a social worker recently said, that's your line. You say that all the time. But I really do say every student wants to do well if they can. Yeah, that's a very powerful way of putting it, Shauna. Now, I'm moving on to another question, which is, again, the most effective responses um, that you think are you need, you, you've developed uh, and that are necessary for everyone involved um, to respond to the challenges with privacy in communicating with young persons, their families and others whom you need to communicate with. Now, you've already mentioned several points about that, but once again, I want you to really focus, highlight on the things that you see as being most important or the things that you find yourself communicating uh, most commonly. Shauna? confidentiality, the sharing of information, while it's never easy, it's not as big a challenge as people feel it is, depending on how you frame the relationship. So I really believe strongly that change comes from relationships. So we can't have change in people without a strong relationship to build from change. So having that positive relationship with the student is the first step for me. When we find common ground, we trust each other, um, things like this seem to fall into place. So if a student really trusts me and I ask them for consent to share information with whoever it is in their world, they will tend to say yes because they trust me enough to know that I'm not doing it, I'm doing it in their best interest. So for some students, that happens really quickly. So for some students, it's the second time I meet them and they're more than happy to go ahead and move forward. And other students especially those students who have sort of been in the system for a long time or they've had, they've shared their story so many times and no one's helped them or they've struggled with their illness for a long time and no one helped them. And that trust piece can be really challenging. 
Um, I think one thing about this program that I'm so lucky to be part of is that there are no limits. So there are no limits on how many times I can see a student. There's no limits on how much time I can spend and dedicate to that student. So when I recognize that a student has a hard time trusting, I can spend lots and lots of time with them and get to know them and allow them to get to know me so that when we can move forward and when I have to ask them about that sharing of information, they'll go forward with that. So we focus on developing the relationship with students first, and out of that relationship, there's a foundation. So students can change. Change can happen. So I think of all the students I've worked with over the years, and some who really don't want me to share any of their story with anyone. They don't want me to talk to the doctor. They don't want me to talk to the psychiatrist. They refuse to sign any forms. If you really can spend time and build a relationship, and when they learn more about my practice and how I practice and what I hold dear, we can work together. We, we work together. We achieve some goals. They learn to trust me. And then they're very, very clear with what information I will share and what the benefit is for them. They're more willing to allow that to happen. Shauna, within the relationship, then, is it right to say that you're building trust between you and the young persons, particularly. Is, is trust a part of what you're building in that relationship, trust, Shana? Absolutely. I don't think, I think that the trust between me and the young person comes first before everything else. So oftentimes, I might even have families who are wanting to become involved, but if I haven't built trust with that student, I'm not going to be able to develop a relationship that will allow any change to happen. And so I won't allow any of those other people to become involved until that student really trusts me. And sometimes that's really easy, and sometimes it's really not easy. Now, just to carry on with this relationship and trust building, building the two together, they both go together. You mentioned that... Um, you're unrestricted as far as time is concerned. In other words, you are able through a series of meetings or maybe prolonging a meeting, I don't know, um, to go on, continue what you're doing until you have established the trust, the relationship. Um, now, this sounds a little bit critical, but it seems to me that that's one of the things that a very, very busy healthcare system probably finds very difficult to do, and that is find the time to do that relationship and trust building that you're doing. Um, so you have all the time you need then to build a relationship. Is that right? I have all the time I can manage to build a relationship. So I don't know that I have all the time I need because I support a large number of schools that have a large number of students. But no one, there's no restriction in the program that would tell me you only have so many visits before you have to get this done. You only have so many, so much time. So I can recognize in a student that needs me more. So if I notice that this particular student, the relationship development is struggling, I can spend more time. I can focus more of my time. I can maybe drop into the school a couple times that week and see them shortly or long if they want, just so they understand that I'm there and that the trust can happen. Right. I don't think anyone in the healthcare system feels like they have all the time in the world, but certainly I have <laughs> the luxury of much more time than anybody else. <laughs> I was going to say, and it's a very valuable luxury, if that's the way you, you want to describe it, because of, of what, of the benefit that it brings to what can be difficult or sometimes tragic circumstances. Now, on that mm -hmm. point, we'll take, we'll take the break. 
once more. This is Dr. Gordon Adley, and my guest is Shauna Johnson. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com When you make decisions, do you ever find yourself in doubt? Are you trying to figure out what's right with you? Are you ready to truly change your life? Listen for the Access Consciousness Radio Show with the founders of Access Consciousness, Gary Douglas and Dr. Dane Here. Consciousness is all about including everything and judging nothing. Our program will help you break free from your personal limitations and enhance positive change in all areas of your life. Tune in to Access Consciousness, Thursdays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Have you figured out what's not working in your business and why? Could you use a little help? Join your host, Tamaran, for Let's Figure It Out Intimately. Tamaran was struggling with the same issue, so she hired other business coaches and experts to help her see what she couldn't. Her journey is to keep learning, and she is here to share this with you so that we can all keep working together. Let's Figure It Out Intimately. Airs live every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Shauna Johnston. Our topic is Nurses and Family Caregivers Caring for Young People with Mental Health Problems. Shauna, now I'd like you to talk about more things that you you would like to see done to help with the challenges created by mental health problems in young people. So first question is, what more would you like to see done to help with the challenges created for young people by mental health problems? Just generally, what more would you like to see the systems do? Shona? So I think in a general term, the system exists to support families and youth, and the system, despite being somewhat fragmented, is a good system, and the services exist that students need. They just need to be expanded. So the biggest strength of our program, it was developed with us to be right in the school where the students go every day. Because we're there, we provide that student and their families with fast actions to high-quality services, and we work to identify and intervene early. So for children and youth with mental health issues, we're there every day. They can see us. We can intervene early. Students and schools are really lucky. There are lots of agencies working alongside their school staff. And the staff at the school are working very hard to ensure that students are hooked up to that right community partner, and they really assist us in helping transition students back to school. The trouble is there's a large number of students and a small number of nurses, or a large number of students and a small number of children, child and youth workers. Whatever the service provider is, there's just not enough of us. 
when we think that one in five people are struggling with symptoms of mental illness, we can see why we need a program that's larger, that there's more people involved, need to be expanded to meet the needs of all. So that's a big piece, and I think that's common to anyone who works in the mental health system at any level. The first thing they would say, we need more support. We need more of us. The other general challenge is that of stigma, that sort of discrimination of people with mental illness, and we really need to start to address it. We need to recognize it's there. It's in the language we use every day. It's in our media. It's in the way we interact with people living with mental illness. We need to recognize it. We need to stand up to it, and we need to work to change it. And that, I think, I always feel would go a long way to help individuals living with mental illnesses. They could face their challenges in a more productive way. If they didn't have self-stigma about what it means to have depression, they could go forward, access help, say, I need help, and stand up for it. We would not question someone who stood up and said, I have diabetes, I really need support, I need help. But we question people with depression or anxiety. So I think stigma is a huge barrier for students and families. And just in general, there needs to be more people in the mental health system to help those people. Right. Same question, but now related to challenges created for family caregivers for the young people. What more would you like to see done to help them, the families? Shona? I think that the main thing that caregivers struggle with is learning to identify what they're trying to see. So when they're living with a a young person who has early signs of mental illness, they need to really know what to look for and they need to intervene as early as they can. So oftentimes families will say to me, when they look in hindsight, oh, I saw that, you know, a year ago. I knew that that was a problem a year ago. I didn't recognize what was going on. So they they know in hindsight, oh, yes, at that point, my student stopped, my youth stopped going to school on a regular basis. Or at that point, they stopped playing in the band that they love to do. They saw a change in their behavior. They saw a marked change in their grades. If they knew, and as a society, we knew what those early signs of mental illness looked like in youth, they would be able to support them better. So I think that that's a huge piece that families struggle with, and that's one of the challenges that I hear from families all the time. The other part is the support from the caregivers' support systems. So I talked before about how hard it is for families if they're they're young person is struggling with mental illness, they don't have the support of the community. So I talk all the time to when I talk to groups about promoting mental well-being, I talk about if you knew someone with mental illness, what would you do to support them? How could you help them? And they often are very blank-faced, thinking, looking at me. And I think of all the parents that I work with who are really struggling with their child who's, you know, been admitted to hospital or comes home from hospital who's struggling with thoughts of suicide, and those caregivers need to be supported. That's a terrible thing to live through. So how do we get our community to come around these families and really support them to allow them to support their loved one? So I think that's a challenge that families have and that really we need to be working towards making life better. And just a very quick comment back to you on that. That's where the prevention at the early stage comes in, isn't it? That is if the family caregiver recognizes that there's a problem developing and that it is a problem, then the early intervention follows, which is what you've been promoting and discussing th- throughout this this um, um, this episode of our show. Now, my last question to you is a little bit different. 
What is your message for family caregivers and for their young family members about the role of nurses in caring for young people with mental health problems? What's your message, Shauna? Being a nurse, I'm a little bit biased, but I always <laughs> feel that that the role of nurses are just so varied, that nurses have this wealth of information and have a real ability to look at clients or patients or young people as a whole. So nurses tend to see that there might be, maybe there's a clinical depression, but it's not just impacting their brain and their well-being. We're looking at all sorts of systems that we're seeing. I think nurses have a very specific role in seeing holistic health. They really look at people as a whole. I'm often asked by the families that I work with, what what can you do to help? I've seen a thousand people. What is it that you do? And every student's different, and the role of the nurse changes based on the needs of that student. I think that's what nurses are best at, looking at this particular student as an individual and changing their role, changing their practice within their scope to meet the needs of that student. So, I mean, in a general way, the role of a nurse in a mental health and addiction family can include access to experienced mental health and addiction community agencies. So maybe my role is to hook them up with that community partner who's doing really good work. Maybe my role is helping to assist students to transition from their psychiatric treatment facilities back to their school, and that transition can be really challenging for families. So nurses have that great ability of understanding the medical world, but also having a foot into the education world, understanding outpatient services, sort of doing all three together. We certainly have a role in education, and preventative health care is a big part of what nurses are believe in, so assisting and supporting that school board staff in understanding what medications do, understanding preventative health care, why is early intervention important, why do we look at behaviors so closely, assisting and supporting that school staff in understanding sort of what to expect from the student, so looking at the illness in general, so education from a health perspective, but then taking that education and making it specific to that particular student that they're working with, I think is really a, a role of nursing that nurses do very well. Now, I'm just going to carry on. Don't let me interrupt you. No, Sorry. you go ahead. <laughs> okay. I was just going to say to you that um, nurses that in the who are working in the field that you're working in are working at the earliest stages of the development of the problem, aren't they? That is, the, when the 70% of the Ill, mental illnesses are developing in young people, mm -hmm. you and your colleagues in the schools are there at that early moment. So your point about early intervention is that you need to be early. You need to be there at the right moment and not uh, perhaps avoid that drifting that used to happen mm -hmm. so much in the past where these young people go from crisis to crisis and hope tends to be lost for them or they get into trouble with the justice systems and this kind of thing. And so it seems mm -hmm. to me that... First of all, and I'm going, I'm going to say this straight out to you, nurses in this role, I think, are a vital part of mental health care, but I think they're a vital part of public health, too, in the sense that 
untreated medical mental illness uncared for men, mental illness is a is a major problem for public health so all i can say to you in thanking you for this great episode and i really mean that for talking to us about yourself your experience giving us your insights and also providing advice and understanding all i can say to you is in a polite way all success to you in your work and in a less polite way a more straightforward way please keep at it because it's vital for our society that's how strongly i feel about what you're doing and i feel about what the nurses are doing that's not to to be negative about the other people who are involved but it's just to highlight your work as you've described it so thank you shauna now i want to say thank, thank you, you so to much you're very welcome. Thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. Our next episode will be listening to family caregivers caring for psychosis. Please join us. Same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again twice every week, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until the next show, we hope our programs help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.